Episode two of the Briona Society podcast. Welcome. We're so glad you're here tonight for our interview with Dr. Jennifer Doliak, PhD in economics from Stanford, director of the Justice Tech Lab, and frankly, a real force on Twitter. You're going to love this. Dr. Doliak walked us through the science of all things police. What does that mean? Well, it's the big questions like, is it possible that America's largest cities are in fact under-policed? And if that's true, how do we recruit not just more officers, but the best ones? And can we learn something about that from a, a study of postcards in Tennessee? Relatedly, what do we do about burnout among 911 dispatchers? And if Dr. Doliak was mayor of one of America's largest cities, what's the one piece of non-law enforcement legislation she would most want passed? We talked about the one book every American should read, and towards the end, we started to riff a little bit and considered what would happen if every human on Earth disappeared and what the Earth would look like in 100 years after. So it was a lot of fun. Before we get to it, subscribe. Subscribe to this podcast. It's the plus button, the button that says subscribe in the top right-hand corner of your screen. We just don't want you to miss all the great episodes coming up over the next couple of weeks. It's free. Subscribe. Now, with all of that said, the Briona Society is so very happy to give you our interview with Dr. Jennifer Doliak. Dr. Doliak, welcome to the Briona Society podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. We've been talking about this for a while now. Everyone on the leadership committee is pumped. We follow you on Twitter. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> so with that lead in, I think a lot of people who listen to the show will know your name. Dr. Jennifer Doliak is a go-to source when it comes to the science of crime and police. She is well-known on Twitter. She has her own podcast, Probable Causation, about law and crime, which is fantastic. Listen to this podcast to the end, but when you're done, you should check it out. <laughs> she also directs the Justice Tech Lab at Texas A&M. She is a Renaissance woman. And I want to ask you a lot about that work. Before we jump into it, though, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to this area? Sure. So I'm an economist by training, PhD in economics, and I'm an economics professor at this point. When I first went to grad school, I was really interested in policy and, and economics, obviously, but really did not plan to study crime. And that was not the original agenda. But as a PhD student in economics, I was hunting around for natural experiments, which is what econ PhD students do, kind of looking for policy changes or the way programs are implemented that give us a good treatment and control group so that we can measure the causal effect of that thing, that intervention, and read a New York Times article about law enforcement DNA databases and how state laws are all different about which types of criminal offenders are required to provide a DNA sample to the state database. The point of the article was like, isn't this crazy and totally ad hoc that if you commit a crime in Kansas, you go in the database. If you commit the same crime in Ohio, you don't. But to someone like me, that's a great natural experiment. <laughs> and so so I thought like, oh, maybe, maybe this would give us some traction to measure whether these DNA databases work or what the effects are in criminal behavior. And so that became my dissertation. Even then, it was a pretty niche area in, in econ to study crime. But long story short, it turns out there's a lot of work to do in this area. And now I'm all in. And this is this is the only thing I think about. <laughs> I want to ask you about police staffing. Mm -hmm. For about 25 years, San Francisco had a charter amendment that set 
a minimum level of police staffing. It was 1,971 full-time sworn officers. In 2020, that changed. And voters passed another amendment that removed the minimum staffing requirement altogether. It was called Prop E in 2020. Since then, San Francisco's full-time police officer count has dropped pretty significantly. We're, as of last month at least, at about 1,651 officers. So I had a contracts professor that warned me that lawyers should not do math in public, but my, my, by my count, it's <laughs> a drop of about 320 officers mm -hmm. and estimated to get a lot lower this year. People have a range of feelings about that. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you, is there just opinion and feelings on this topic or is there scientific research on how many officers are optimal and if there's a correlation with having more officers and the effect on crime? There are probably both feelings and research. I can be con confidently say there are both feelings and research on this. Lots of research, actually. So there's a lot of stuff we don't know about how to reduce crime and the impacts of various programs and interventions on criminal behavior. But one thing we have a ton of really good causal evidence on at this point is on the effects of putting more police on the streets and hiring more police officers. So just in general, increasing police presence on crime rates. And so researchers, you know, you have to kind of be creative in, in, way, in figuring out a way to measure that causal relationship because in general, places with more crime are going to hire more police officers. So if you just look at a correlation, it's going to look like more police cause more crime, right? And we thought that for a long time <laughs> until people figured out how to do this kind of research better. But at this point, the research is overwhelmingly, resoundingly provides the answer that increasing police presence does reduce crime, particularly violent crime. There are some estimates out there that based, again, purely on this effect on crime rates, most U.S. cities are under-policed dramatically, and so we should be putting more police on streets. Now, of course, we're having an on, you know, we're in the middle of an ongoing national conversation about the role of police and what police should be doing. There are obviously social costs to some things that police do. People worry a lot about the unnecessary escalation of incidents to arrests or violence. Those are things we need to be taking very seriously. And those costs matter. And but I think the policy and research conversation is at this point, how do we maintain these benefits, these crime reduction benefits that we know we get from policing while minimizing the costs? You've done a podcast episode each with Professor Morgan Williams and Professor Aaron Chalfin. And I want to ask you about this because they did a study together. As I understand it, they gathered public data sources for about 240 cities between 1981 and 2018. So you know, roughly 40 years. Everything from police employment, homicide rates, reported crimes to arrests. And they ran a regression analysis. And what they found was that adding a new police officer, an additional police officer, prevented between 0.06 and 0.1 homicides. In other words, every time a city added 10 to 17 new police officers, it spared at least one homicide and saved at least one life. So whenever I have, I go around and, and talk about this a fair amount now, given rising homicide rates, lots and lots of cities are worried about rising crime rates and wondering what they can do about it. I always lead with my first recommendation is we should put more police on the streets. Like that is the one thing we know is going to increase public safety, reduce violent crime. There are lots of other things we can also do <laughs> to reduce violent crime. And so if 
a particular city does not want to hire more police officers for some reason or can't given staffing and recruiting issues. There are other things to do, but it is an important enough relationship and a solid enough relationship that it's only to our detriment to ignore it. Let's talk about how to bring officers online. Many departments have the same problem these days. More retirements, fewer recruits. Mm -hmm. I did a Google search to find some specific examples, and the searches really tell the story. So if you do a Google News search on this topic, CBS News Chicago, police department struggles as burnt out cops quit. Virginian pilot newspaper, Norfolk police vacancy set to hit 40% by year's end. Uh, Philly police officers, 70 new officers coming online. They'll start amid a shortage of more than 500. It seems like this is a classic example whereby the government can't wave a magic wand or press a button and bring officers online immediately. It will take time and you have to attract these candidates. Mm -hmm. What does the research tell us about how to attract candidates to become police officers and how do you attract the good ones? the best candidates. So Elizabeth Linos is a researcher at Harvard Kennedy School. She does the best research on this. Um, I absolutely love her work. Um, It's fascinating. She's really interested in questions around how to recruit and retain more and different people into public service in general. So she has this great experiment in Tennessee where she basically just wanted to test different messaging, for instance, to figure out what would draw more people to apply for a job in, in the police department. Uh, what she found is that the, the classic messages that police departments use all the time, things like, you know, this is a great way to serve your community, kind of an appeal to that public service type of motivation, does nothing. <laughs> she sent out basically random postcards to different people, randomizing which messages they got. So that's how she's she's measuring this. And so the postcards that appealed to this public service motivation had no impact on the likelihood that the person applied for a job as a police officer. But other messages, things like highlighting the challenge of the career, challenge of the job. You know, if you're the kind of person who really enjoys a challenge, it's a good job for you. And the other message that really worked was highlighting the career aspect of it. This is a good long-term career. You know, there's room to grow, good benefits, all those sorts of things. Both of those messages significantly increased the number of people who applied for jobs in the police department and particularly people from underrepresented groups, so minorities, women, which are the kinds of officers that uh, a lot of us would like to see more of (laughs) in police departments. People who are in law enforcement know that law enforcement is more than just police officers. It's folks like 911 dispatchers. Mm -hmm. And because we don't see them on the street, perhaps there's a tendency not to think about them as much, but they're a critical piece of law enforcement infrastructure. Can you tell us about research on 911 dispatchers? What's the state of our 911 dispatchers in the U.S., and what can we do to help them with burnout or at least retain them so that we have a capable, experienced force? Yeah, so 911 dispatchers, corrections officers, and jails and prisons are another category of employees that we often don't think about but are really important in the system. And yeah, these jobs are really tough, right? They're really difficult jobs. People don't, they're often really thankless. And so they're Burnout's a really big issue. So Elizabeth Linos, again, is kind of doing the best work on this right now. She's an experiment with 911 dispatchers on how to reduce burnout. And again, it's similar to that postcard experiment, sort of a low-touch experiment uh, is what she was, what she was trying. The experiment she ran offered people 
essentially online forums to to interact and kind of share stories and share advice about how to deal with these tough these tough situations and essentially just build a sense of community and a sense that like you're not alone in this with dispatchers from around the country so not even just within your own office maybe you can see them at the lunchroom anyway but really building up connections and community support among people who have this very tough job around the country. Crime is obviously on voters' minds in San Francisco. As you've no doubt heard, the district attorney, Chase Boudin, was recalled in an election mm-hmm. earlier this summer. We have another election coming up next month. Lots of crime and public safety-related questions on the ballot. One big change in San Francisco over the last month or so has been the introduction of a new surveillance technology ordinance. It has a lot of different facets to it. In essence, it allows the San Francisco Police Department to use live camera feeds from private security cameras, providing the business who owns that camera gives its consent. So if you're a business owner and you're worried about crime in your neighborhood and you have a camera, you can let SFPD get that feed. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this policy, too, has a lot of critics and a lot of advocates. Putting aside the specific policy, do we have research on the effectiveness of cameras? And if so, what does it tend to say? Yeah. So this is very much in line with what I was saying earlier about how we have increasing evidence that increasing the likelihood of getting caught for a crime or increasing the detection for a crime has a big deterrent effect on crime. The evidence on surveillance cameras falls in that bucket. There are a few studies now in different countries looking at what happens when we put surveillance or CCTV cameras, for instance, on subways or around neighborhoods. And overall, they find big reductions in crime, especially the kinds of crime you might Imagine in that area. So in the in the subway system, robbery fell in the stations where there were cameras. Now, of course, that crime might get displaced somewhere else, but the solution then can be to put the cameras somewhere else as well. Certainly, other countries are way ahead of us on this. London has cameras everywhere. They're sort of well known for the, that system. I think as a researcher, I'm very bullish on this kind of intervention, especially when we think about wanting to reduce mass incarceration, wanting to shift our system uh, away from being more punitive, there are trade-offs. And the, and the question is, compared to what? The alternative here is most likely putting more police on every street corner. If putting cameras around can be the way that we avoid those other interventions, that I think would make a lot of people happy. There's also a way in which technology like this can reduce the likelihood of wrongful arrests and convictions, right? So you have footage now of the actual person who was committing the crime, and we don't have to rely on eyewitness testimony or a policeman's hunch about who was likely to have done it. In general, I am very optimistic that technology is going to be very helpful to us, but obviously it is a, an ongoing policy conversation. San Francisco prides itself, well, if it doesn't pride itself, it sees itself, as a tech city. And part of being a tech city is being a data city. And I can already imagine, you know, just saying the word data, a chorus of techies in Soma erupting in applause. But it's true. Data has changed our lives in so many different ways. And you've done some really important work around data, specifically with DNA databases and predictive policing. Can you tell us a bit about that work? So the way that I approach that question is uh, is mostly using expansions of DNA databases as a natural experiment. So you have a state or a country decides they're going to expand the DNA database to include, say, just convicted murderers to also include convicted robbers and burglars. That expansion has to 
go into effect on a particular day, right? So there's overnight, you have someone who was convicted of murder or convicted of robbery the day before the implementation date does not go into the database the day after the new law takes effect, they do go in the database. You can have very similar offenders get this different treatment. So the the implementation date of the law effectively randomizes people into a treatment or control group, which is the kind of natural experiment that someone like me gets very excited about. So I have work in the US and in Denmark now, which has much better data, looking at the effects of these types of DNA expansions and basically what's the effect of putting someone into the DNA database on their future criminal behavior, so on their recidivism. And what I find in both places is it dramatically reduces the likelihood that they wind up with a new conviction or new incarceration in the future. So in Denmark, the policy change we were looking at was an expansion from people convicted of just very, very serious offenses, just a really small subset of people, to anyone charged with a felony. So they didn't even have to be convicted. So a lot of those charges are going to be bargained down (laughs) into misdemeanors, right? In general, it's just a really huge share of people charged with crimes in Denmark now are added to the DNA database. And we saw a reduction in recidivism of 42% going forward, which is just huge. But also, again, it's in line with all its other evidence that's accumulating that increasing the probability of getting caught has huge deterrent effects. Hypothetical for you. If you were the mayor of a large American city and you had a supermajority coalition behind you such that you could pass any legislation you so desired, what are the top one or two items on Jennifer Doliak's list? Oh, let's see. Well, so I'm obviously really bullish on these kinds of technologies. So yeah, I'd probably be in favor of a lot more cameras and those sorts of things. But I have to say, whenever anyone asks me this question, and we haven't just been talking about technology, my number one recommendation is lead abatement. <laughs> so reducing lead in taking lead out of soil and water pipes and houses. And we just have so much evidence at this point that lead exposure when you're really young has long-term detrimental effects, not only on education and health, but also in terms of crime. And so there's this lead crime hypothesis that's been floating around for years about maybe this is what caused the big reduction in crime in the 90s. Who knows about that? Like that, there are probably a lot of things that contributed to that big reduction in crime in the 90s. But we do have lots of evidence that exposure to lead when you're young has really detrimental effects on your own outcomes in the future and including increasing violent crime. You had a, well, I was about to say, you had a fascinating episode of your podcast. You have many fascinating episodes of your podcast. (laughs) But you had one where you talked about something similar, which is that crime rates can fluctuate depending on air quality and that Mm -hmm. this can be seen, and correct me if I'm wrong, on as small a scale as one side of a freeway versus the other. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, this is absolutely terrifying and is like my favorite research evidence anecdote to pull out. So we now have this evidence from a few different places that exposure to air pollution on a given day increases violent crime in that day in that neighborhood. And so the basic experiment is what you just described. You've got a highway and the wind is blowing toward the east one day and it blows all the air pollution from the car exhaust toward the east. And then the neighborhoods to the east of that highway violent crime goes up on that day. And then the next day, the wind blows the other direction, and then you see violent crime go up 
on the west of the highway the next day. And so you just, you see this violent crime basically following where the wind is blowing on a day-to-day basis. And it's very difficult to come up with some other story about how that could be caused by anything except the air pollution. So it's an absolutely terrifying finding. Crime is obviously a really extreme outcome. Most of us are not on the margin of of beating somebody up, (laughs) but but presumably all of our brains are affected um, by this exposure to air pollution. And for some people, it does kind of tip them over the edge. It's chilling. Yes. Important, but chilling. <laughs> so you're a professor. You have many powers, soft and hard. <laughs> you have one hard power, though, that I would love to have myself. So I have to ask you what it's like to have that power. You have the power to prescribe books that other people must read <laughs> and to do this at least twice a year. Outside of economics, if you could prescribe one book to be read by every American, what would be the book? Ooh, so outside of the specific research space. I, I would even make it general? a little, I'd give you a little more leeway. So okay. not a textbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every American is going to read this book. A book that I read recently that I find myself talking about all the time is The No Club by a bunch of researchers. I'm not sure they're all actually academics, but uh, there's at least one or two economists on the the author team. And they basically are talking about the what they call non-promotable tasks and how we all in our various jobs have to do a certain number of tasks to kind of keep our organizations running that we're not going to get a ton of credit for and we're not going to get promoted based on, right? So someone has to order lunch for the weekly meeting or clean up after lunch or something like that. Um, And it turns out in practice, when you look at who does this work, it's a lot of, it's mostly women, particularly minority women. So this whole book is basically talking about why this happens and how all of our natural biases and general socialization pushes both women to say yes more and for our bosses to ask us more. But they also provide a lot of very interesting solutions. And this is so this is something that an idea I'd certainly been exposed to in my time as a, a woman in academia and in economics, which is very white and very male. But I found the book absolutely fascinating. And it brings in a lot of really new evidence and ways of thinking about this problem that I'd never thought about before. And I think it's really useful for honestly, anyone to read whether especially people who are in kind of positions of authority in their organizations and want to contribute to making those organizations more fair. That's a great answer. When I said any book, but all Americans, I hedged for a moment. I was going to say it can be a book or you can sort of adapt it to a graphic novel to get everyone's interest. <laughs> I don't know what a kind of a graphic novel that would be, but part of me would, would read that as a graphic novel. Uh-huh. I would read it again. It's a graphic novel. I'll yeah, have to tell the authors about that. <laughs> yeah, if they can make the 9-11 report a graphic novel, they can make that a graphic novel. That's right. That's right. I thought about this question myself because, as I said, I would love to have that ability. <laughs> I came up with too many titles. The one that's at the top of my list, though, your point about Leda Bateman reminded me of this. So the book would be The World Without Us by Alan Weissman. It's basically a thought experiment. What would happen to the world, natural world, but also the built world, if every human on earth just disappeared all of a sudden? Everyone's gone. And the bottom line is in a couple hundred years, all wood structures will have collapsed. Every neighborhood would have returned to forests. And all that would be left are basically plastic cups in Mount Rushmore. Obviously, there's an eco message there. But to me, it it was like a lesson in impermanence that all these things that we fret about all day long, none of them are going to last. None of them are, are permanent in any way other than what goes unsaid in the book, which is the impact we have on the people that go on after us. It was a very powerful book to me for that reason. 
Awesome. Awesome. I will plug, I should probably plug at least one book that's actually on the topic we were talking about. I think the best, there are not that many economists that write books, uh, a really good one in this space that really provides, I think, data and some clarifications on a lot of misconceptions about what kinds of policies could be useful and just what the history, how how we got to where we are, is John Pfaff's book, Locked In. So it's his last name is Pfaff, P-F-A-F-F. In some ways, it's sort of a response to the new Jim Crow, which makes the argument that it was the war on drugs that led to mass incarceration and it's private prisons that are a big problem and all of these things. And he basically debunks a lot of that with data, not to take away from the overall theme of the new Jim Crow, but basically is making the point that if we really want to get serious about mass incarceration, we're going to have to do a whole lot more than release drug offenders, right? We're going to have to change the way we handle people convicted of violent crimes. Private prisons are a very small part of the story. They're really not what's driving anything, things like that. But it's a it's a good read. And if you if you like data and you like being able to correct your friends at parties, it's a good, good read. I do enjoy doing that. So you got me with that hook. <laughs> on the topic of important books and also on the topic of you being too humble, you have a book coming out. <laughs> can you tell us about that and what we can expect? Yes. Yeah, so the book is still in the works due to my editor next year. It's the title, at least at this point, is The Science of Second Chances. And it's basically what we know from the research about how to intervene at each stage of the criminal justice process to give someone a real second chance and break the incarceration cycle. How to handle first-time offenders, how to help someone who's currently incarcerated, someone who's just been released on, on parole. Again, what the research says about what actually works in many ways sort of leans into a more incrementalist frame. I think a lot of times people come away from these conversations thinking the current criminal justice system is just a complete mess and we just have to burn it all down and start over. It is a mess in many ways, but we're not going to burn it down and start all over. And so I think that leaves a lot of people with just a lot of despair and not knowing what to do about it. And I am extremely optimistic based on the research that and the data that we have at this point and the amazing new research is coming out every day that we are moving in the right direction and we have a lot of answers and we have a lot of examples of things that might seem like relatively small changes in the grand scheme of things, but just by changing incentives in the right way in the system, we can get really big benefits. Dr. Jennifer Doliak, this has been fascinating. Before we part, I have no doubt that many of our listeners are going to want to keep up with your thinking. If people want to get more of your research, more of your thoughts on these topics, how can they do that? My website is jenniferdoliak.com. I am at Jennifer Doliak on Twitter. I spend way too much time on Twitter. So for better or worse, you can find lots of my thoughts there. And then the podcast is Probable Causation. It comes out every other week. And I talk to a researcher about a specific paper and we get into the weeds of it and talk about policy implications and try to make it really accessible for a broad audience. So I'd encourage folks to check that out. 